welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Friday, September 9th, 2022, a day after the end of the second Elizabethan era. The BBC is interrupting its normal programs to bring you an important announcement. This is BBC News from London. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. In a statement, the palace said the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. BBC Television is broadcasting this special programme reporting the death of Her Majesty the Queen. Well, that's remarkable. And uh, I'm joined by my colleague, Bill Crystal, on this weekend's Bulwark podcast. First of all, good morning, Bill. Good morning, Charlie. So here we are, a bunch of Americans sitting around celebrating the life and reign of the Queen of England. I mean, you know, among the many remarkable things I want to touch on here, the fact that that you, you watched the American media yesterday and it was wall to wall coverage of the death of a monarch that a monarchy that we had actually rebelled against some time ago. And apparently uh, th those, those are still the ties that bind, aren't they? I think it is remarkable. You know, you played that clip and I actually had chills, <laughs> you know, in my uh, listening to it. And I, but I've always discounted my own sort of interest in and fondness for Britain uh, and various institutions and trappings of, of you know, British mm -hmm. history and society, because I, I did spend the first, four or five years of my life there. Not that I remember anything of that, but my father edited a magazine there. My mother was a historian primarily of Great Britain. So I always said, okay, I'm unusual just because of accident of birth and family and having a kind of feeling, a connection to, you know, to Britain. But obviously there's no reason most Americans, 99% of Americans should have the slight, you know, resonance it has for me. Not so slight maybe, mm -hmm. but, and, uh, but it turns out, as you say, that an awful lot of Americans, uh, a, they, well, they look, they were our great allies in the last, in the two great wars of the 20th century, and that maybe trumps the revolution of uh, almost 250 years ago. And then the 70 year reign, and the, it's, it is just a kind of extraordinary thing in so many ways. Well, and she's such an extraordinary woman. I, I, I in my newsletter, I let off with a BBC obituary where they, which began, the long reign of Queen Elizabeth II was marked by her strong sense of duty and her determination to dedicate her life to her throne and to her people. She became, for many, the one constant point in a rapidly changing world. As British influence declined, society changed beyond recognition and the role of the monarchy itself came into question. Her success in maintaining the monarchy through such turbulent times was even more remarkable, given that at the time of her birth, no one could have foreseen the throne would be her destiny. And as I wrote, I think, you know, turbulent times is kind of classic British understatement. I mean, you know, her the arc of her life spans a century that saw the world broken apart, remade again and again. So even though, and I guess I was struck by this as well. I mean, she's 96 years old. This is not like a huge surprise, but her death did come as kind of a shock to a lot of people. And I, I think it's because she was that sort of rock of stability in this world. And, you know, she wasn't just a queen. She was the queen for most of her lives. But also, you know, Billy, it really strikes me what a countercultural figure she is. Mm -hmm. When you think about that, she's being celebrated 
not because of any policies or accomplishments or wars won, but because of the strength of her character and the sense of duty and the contrast between sort of, you know, the modern sensibility about, you know, it's all about me and all about, you know, kind of the you know triviality of, of celebrity. We are talking about a woman who is just characterized by her sense of self-sacrifice and duty and those values. And it really does seem like a throwback to a lost world. Yeah, no, that's well said. And you said it well also in the slightly more length in the newsletter. And people should read that and think about that. I mean, I guess for me, I would just add one thing. And this, again, comes maybe particularly for my own interests. And the fact that she became queen when Winston Churchill was prime minister. And there's a very moving speech by Churchill, which you can listen to on audio, of announcing the death of her father, King George, and and then welcoming, saying, God save the queen, you know, for the first time almost uh, uh, a day or two after King George's death, just as we're now saying uh, the crowds in London this morning were singing God save the king and, uh, for the first for the first time in 70 years. You know? um, and so the, it's a link to Churchill. I mean, she was a living link to Churchill. She was a teenager during the war, but, you know, Churchill was prime minister for the, I guess, what, first two, three years of her reign. And Churchill was Churchill. And 1940, in my opinion, still kind of one of the greatest moments in history, really. The Britain standing alone, you know, against against the Nazis, us helping some, but, you know, not engaged yet. And so I think there's that too, don't you think? It's her, her own personal steadfastness and, and sense of duty. And then the real, the connection to one of the really, you know, greatest moments of the defense of freedom in, in, in world history. And she wasn't quite involved herself, but, but she was uh, very much of a living link to it. Well, she was very much a living link to it. And, you know, for a lot of uh, people in the world today, did I see the statistic that 90 percent of the people um, alive today um, were born after she became queen? So, I mean, for a lot of for the vast majority of people in the world, certainly in this country, that's ancient history. And yet that was part of her life and, and her legacy. And it was an extraordinary legacy. I mean, she became you know, um, the accidental queen in some in some ways, because she was not really uh, close in the line of succession until until her uncle, uh, Edward VIII, rather flamboyantly abdicated the throne so he could get married to an American divorcee, maybe a foreshadowing of things that were going to happen to the royal family. And so she had to hold everything together um, after her father died. But, you know, you're going back to that, that greatest moment uh, during World War Two. And the role that her father played in in uniting Britain, and of course reminding people why they they still wanted a monarchy. But even as a teenager, she played a significant role, and that she introduced herself, or she was introduced to the the, the British people by making, which is remarkable now, making radio addresses. I think when she was about fourteen, fifteen years old, mm-hmm. to the country, and this is a little bit of extended tape, but. Keep in mind that this took place in the middle of World War II, where a teenage girl named Elizabeth, who could never have imagined, you know, what her life would be like or how the world would change. This is how this teenage girl spoke to the British people in one of their darkest hours. In wishing you all good evening, I feel that I am speaking to friends and companions who have shared with my sister and myself Many a happy children's are. Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister Margaret Rose and I feel so much for you as we know from experience what it means to be away from those we love most of all. To you living in new surroundings, we send a message of true sympathy. And at the same time, we would like to thank the kind people who have welcomed you to their homes in the country. All of us children who are still at home think continually of our friends and relations who have gone overseas, who have traveled thousands of miles to find a wartime home and a kindly welcome in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and the United States of America. My sister and I feel we know quite a lot about these countries. Our father and mother have so often talked to us 
of their visits to different parts of the world. So it is not difficult for us to picture the sort of life you are all leading and to think of all the new sights you must be seeing and the adventures you must be having. But I am sure that you too are often thinking of the old country. I know you won't forget us. It is just because we are not forgetting you that I want, on behalf of all the children at home, to send you our love and best wishes to you and to your kind hosts as well. Before I finish, I can truthfully say to you all that we children at home are full of cheerfulness and courage. We are trying to do all we can to help our gallant sailors, soldiers and airmen. And we are trying too to bear our own share of the danger and sadness of war. We know, every one of us, that in the end all will be well. For God will care for us and give us victory and peace. And so at the age of 96, uh, the Queen passes away. And of course, Britain will spend the next uh, fortnight in uh, very formal and very formal mourning. And of course, uh, introducing itself to the new king, which is going to take a, to take a little while getting used to the idea of King Charles III, Bill. Yeah, it is. I mean, that speech was kind of amazing. It was it I mean, not kind of. It was really, <laughs> first of all, one forgets how many children from London went to the countryside, I believe, right? I mean, a lot of yeah. them were sent if they had relatives or even not relatives. Certainly the immigrant children, the children they took in from Europe went off into the countryside. London was too dangerous in 1940 with the Blitz. The king, if I'm not mistaken, famously refused to leave London, yes. though, at the height of the Blitz. And that was quite important. And Churchill thought that was quite uh, important for rallying the country. But it was a fair number went abroad if they had relatives, as as, as, as the princess says in, in, in Canada and elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, again, it just brings home what a moment 1940 was. That this was, you know, it is like Ukraine today in the sense that they were, you know, people had to leave if they or if they couldn't contribute to the war effort, it was safer for them to leave and frankly better for them to leave. So people didn't have to worry about them and, and so forth. So the whole thing is, is uh, reminds one of so many things that that speech is, there's so many Churchillian phrases mm-hmm. and formulations in it. And I suppose since Churchill was giving those speeches in real time, mm-hmm. any competent speechwriter could have simply appropriated them from Churchill's. But one sort of wonders why the Churchill didn't personally have a hand in that. I, I've never read the history of that, but you know, it just some some of the formulations are so much like Churchill's own, especially when Churchill gave occasional speeches to younger to children, actually. I mean, it is that Christmas Eve address in 1941. And I, I just wonder if I'm sure historians know this and we can look it up, but uh, whether or maybe they don't know, but Churchill did it privately, but you know, that he helped out with those, with those sure. remarks. Yeah. Well, and again, there's just so much history embodied in this woman. I mean, the 13 American presidents, all the things she saw. Yeah. And I was really struck by the fact that, you know, you could imagine that, you know, had she passed away earlier, people might have thought of her reign as being a reign of disappointments. When you think of, you know, the decline of empire, the, the decline of uh, Britain as a world power, uh, you know, domestic terrorism, uh, economic crises, uh, you know, the breakup of the marriage of, of, her, of her children, all of those royal scandals, you know, some of right. which were, were truly, truly awful. And yet in the end, people look at her and they say, you know, you know, sh- she did keep calm. She did, you know, keep us together. She was that symbol of unity. She kept the stiff upper lip and everything. And people admired that. So really, and again, in an era in which, you know, we've moved past, you know, character matters, basically her whole story is her values and her character. I mean, that's it, right? I mean, there's not, there's not, you know, with all of the the, the tragedies and the disappointments of, of her life, you could say that she was presiding over the dissolution of both Britain and the monarchy. And yet no one feels that way today because of this singular, this frail elderly woman and her strength of character that really you saw, uh, you know, first on display in the 1940s, which is, again, amazing. Yeah, and I guess I would add, um, I'll make a slightly more political point in the sense of uh, geopolitical. I mean, I think there was obviously the empire to dissolve and the family life isn't a happy story particularly and who knows what will happen to the monarchy in the years ahead but somehow insofar she's associated with 
maintaining the, the unity and of a nation that is was itself the embodiment for so long uh, of the rule of law and liberty and uh, you know uh, progress if, if, if sometimes halting uh, you know for people within that nation and even around the world though what can then litigate the whole colonial stuff and all that but still at the end of the day you know that was that was a kind of progress that was from their point of view, I suppose, the dissolution of the empire. Mm. But it was done, it was done awkwardly, God knows awkwardly, and hundreds of thousands of people killed, but still it happened, and they managed to try to retain ties in the Commonwealth and all this. But, but more broadly speaking, Britain with us remained a bastion of liberty. And I do think that also matters, right? If she had simply been a person of dignity, but it really it just collapsed into you know, an authoritarian state, let's just say, yeah, right, by, 20, right. 20, by 2022, it would be, well, that's a sort of sad story of the last monarch and people would be writing books like that the way they do about, you know, Austria-Hungarian emperors or something like that, you know, preceding the fall of that empire. But but because Britain remains a free country and a vigorous democracy and a upholder of liberty around the world, I mean, the last thing she would have seen or supervised in a sense as queen would be very aggressive British efforts to help Ukraine and real leadership mm-hmm. in that role. Um, I do think that matters. To, it it show, reminds one that, you know, being on the side of freedom matters, even if you're a monarch who is, therefore has a slightly ambiguous relationship with, you know, full democracy. And even if the colonial past, people can use that against you. Still, at the end of the day, Britain hu- hugely on the side of freedom for the last uh, century or so and more, I would even say. And, uh, and therefore, she somehow came to embody that as well, I think. Well, and she she stayed out of politics. She didn't have many interventions, but but the ones she had were decisive. And I think you know, her standing by Ukraine was certainly was certainly important. But also, she pushed back against Margaret Thatcher during the debate over sanctions against South African apartheid. And I think that she understood that in order to hold together the Commonwealth at that time, the Commonwealth nations were overwhelmingly opposed to apartheid and overwhelmingly in support of taking a strong stand, that she needed to to change Margaret Thatcher's mind about that. And she did draw that line. And uh, that tells you a little bit about about who she was, that she didn't, she didn't get into fights very often, but when she did, she managed to win and was usually on the right side. So let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous, absurd, and grubby. Should we make that transition? I am, of course, talking about Steve Bannon. The sublime is always a little ridiculous, so it is, if we can be honest, so you know, it's it's a good transition to make. You know, a lot of the a lot of the greatest British comic, you know, writers and uh, ironic novelists <laughs> and you know poets would have liked this transition. So we're we're entitled yeah. to make it, in my opinion. You know. Um, well, yeah, again, you want to, you want to talk about the the importance of character versus the 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 opposite. The thing that strikes me today, and I wrote about this in my newsletter, is that you know Steve Bannon, you know, obviously wants to portray himself as a martyr against the deep state and everything. The fact is that he is just a grubby crook, and that he is both an architect and an artifact of this MAGA world, which has you know, despite all the we can talk about the semi fascism and Biden speech and everything, you know, at root, it's just this cynical fraud that where Donald Trump and people and people in his orbit like Steve Bannon, you know, have such contempt for their own followers that they have built this movement based on lying and cheating their most loyal backers and milking them for every last nickel of cash. And Bannon, you know, was was nailed on this back in 2020. He got pardoned by Trump. But if you read through the indictment, you just get the sense of, you know, at the bottom of all of this is this cynical, shabby grift. And at some point, I know it's naive at this point, but, you know, instead of constantly saying to, you know, MAGA supporters, you guys are all fascists or anything, how about, do you understand that this guy is lying to you? He, he thinks you are rubes. He is the one that thinks you are gullible yokels. He is the one who has been lying and ripping you off. I okay, I, I I confess to naivete, but but it's certainly a reminder about how you know central grift is to MAGA world. To read about Steve Bannon, yeah, very much so. And uh, Trump was, is, and remains post presidency a con man. I mean, and and a very successful, sadly, con a con man who was so successful as to endanger American democracy, which which means he's more than a mere con man, more than someone who, you know. Makes a lot of families unhappy and immiserated, even and 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 so, and all that. But but really does damage to the 
political structure fabric of the country in a way that's rare. So he is a very dangerous con man. So uh, the grift doesn't, as, as you sort of said, the, the grift doesn't obviate the, the real danger, right? It, they can go together. And uh, and the people around Trump, many of them at the higher levels uh, of those around him are also con men, and in some cases women. And that's very important to remember. Now, you, all, I think you pointed out in the newsletter that saying that is not necessarily well received, when even you. by the victims of the con man. I mean, that's what someone wrote a very good piece about this. I'm going to say in the middle of the Trump presidency, so mm-hmm. maybe four or five years ago. I don't really, I don't remember about you know the history of cons in a way, big cons like this though, and how resistant people are to being told they've been conned, and how much they dislike the people who are yes. telling them they're conned and how long they hang on to the con. I mean, this, if you look at the history of Ponzi, or I think this is true of Madoff, Madoff too, and others, I mean, it, it's sort of the con became obvious at some point, and then people just continued to right. you know, be part of it. It's true of religious cons, for you know the, the kind of famous uh, instances of that too, where you'd think it all come crashing down immediately, and it takes longer than that. And again, people's first reaction is to defend the con man who's conned them. And so I may, hopefully we're at that stage, and maybe ultimately it does come crashing down, and maybe that ultimately, maybe that can happen kind of suddenly, you know, they defend, they defend, they defend the con man, and suddenly it's like, oh my God, you know, but you would have thought there have been a lot of oh my god moments by now that people could have broken from it but uh the con was is attractive and 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 people haven't paid much of a price so it's not like Madoff in that sense right, right. I mean, if you've been a trump supporter you're if you're an upscale trump supporter you're probably doing pretty well with your different gigs and and, and, and tv or preferential access to cabinet agencies till january 21 if you're a let's say normal you know working class middle class trump supporter out in the country uh, again you haven't really paid too much of a price one way or the other. You paid a price if you believed that you shouldn't take the vaccine, I guess. But so there hasn't, it hasn't come, there hasn't been the sort of real reckoning that you get with Ponzi or Madoff. But, but I don't know, maybe people are gradually, are gradually awakening. I don't know. Well, you'd hope so because you would think that, that normally people don't like being lied to. And when they realize that they have been lied to, uh, when they have been uh, looked at with such contempt that they would uh, push back. But uh, that hasn't happened so far. I think part of it's a sunken cost. You know, once you're in and you, you bought into so many, you made so many sacrifices, you've broken so many uh, norms, you, you've done so much, you're so invested that you just can't back out. And we know how that works. I mean, you get, you get you know, enmeshed into that world. And Tim writes about that in in his book. Okay, so let's step back and look at the state of play right now. You gave a very interesting interview to uh, Greg Sargent in the Washington Post. I'm looking at the headline here. A longtime conservative insider warns the GOP can't be saved. Um, we have been dis- d- discussing this for the last, I feel like, four years or so, Bill. Yeah, no kidding. Where I, I, I think originally you had held out hopes that the GOP could be saved. Uh, maybe they were very tentative and tenuous uh, hopes. But, you know... Can you point to one moment where you said, okay, that's it. There's no salvation for the Republican Party. One uh, side note before answering the good question. Uh, Yeah, it is. I mean, I was laughing last night with Tim Miller, who's in town about this too, that I mean, we, for four years, we've been saying over and over the same stuff that you wrote in your book. When was that book? How that was right. 2017. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's almost all been vindicated, honestly, and been correct. And and we've elaborated on things and learned more, obviously, as we've gone along about the character of the collapse of conservatism and of the Republican Party. But it is always funny that a certain number of people are like, wow, he was, I got a fair amount of this, you know, mm-hmm. Crystal was really candid in saying stuff that I feel like I've said a yeah. hundred times and you've said 200 times and Tim has said 300 mm-hmm. times. I mean, it's just, uh, but it's fine. I mean, obviously I, I, happy to say it over and over again and maybe it's worth saying over and over again i mean i would say this i, I think it's less of a psychological thing it was i hopeful or not hopeful i i thought and i think we all thought this that it, look if you it, maybe there's a one in three chance we would have said in 2017-18 that trump is a passing phenomenon that these the guardrails hold the establishments sort of hold the conservative establishment republicans in congress hold that evaporated pretty quickly, but still by mid-2017, it wasn't obvious. So it was reasonable to say, look, if it's a one in three chance, a one in eight chance, one in 15 chance, it's very important if you, to have a sane, two sane parties in the country. And so we should do our best. We At that time, we had so much more allegedly influence in the Republican Party, or let's just say credibility in, in making a case to conservatives and Republicans. Uh, we didn't have that much to tell the Democrats who were in opposition, except calm down, don't go too far left, but, um, and do, do oppose this stuff. So it made sense, I think, for us to focus our efforts there. 
I, I by 2018, 19, it became a little hard to believe that there were there was anything was going to much was going to good was going to come out of that party. I think going along with the first impeachment was uh, the fact that zero Republicans in the House and one in the Senate yeah. voted to impeach and convict was a pretty big moment. The utter failure of the Republican establishment when they could have risen up in 2019 and tried at least not to renominate Trump. Then once he was renominated, maybe that would have failed, of course. But once he was renominated, the total falling in line behind Trump. Uh, those were decisive for me. Uh, maybe for other people who are still hanging on to hope, and I'd say Liz Cheney is in this category. January six was deci- November third to January six was decisive, as it should have been. And I give Liz Cheney a lot of credit for you know I don't she hung on longer than maybe she should have, but she was in a very different position. So I understand what she was thinking, so to speak. You know, in those uh, during 2019-20, don't quite agree with her analysis then, but she was in a different position, as I say. And then she at least came, you know, drew the correct conclusion from November 3rd to January 6th. Uh, What's amazing is how everyone else just drew the conclusion for 48 hours and then just went right back to to going along and to this day, are pretty much going along. So the Wall Street Journal editorial page is still mostly, they're not exactly pro-Trump. He shouldn't have taken the classified documents, but oh, but got a, they spent a heck of a lot of time, more, more time criticizing the FBI uh, for its behavior. It seems to me, or printing op-eds at least, that criticize the FBI, than criticizing Trump. And the criticism of Trump is all, it's, it's unfortunate he's doing this. He's hurting Republican chances in the midterm, you know, not serious, deep, fundamental criticism. Um, some they prefer DeSantis, obviously, and all that. So, Long way of saying that I think, you know, people sometimes interpret this as kind of, when did you finally, you know, reach your breaking point? And that's fair enough. And of course, we all have Mm -hmm. our slightly different breaking points. But I think a lot of this was just an empirical judgment, and I think a correct one. It wasn't, some of the people who weren't involved in this and who looked at it from the outside who were just unsympathetic to the whole Republican Party and conservatism. So for them, it was just all awful from the beginning, and and it was pretty awful, but from 2015 on. But, you know, it wasn't. There was a pretty big change in people's views. I mean, I, we were all anti-Trump. We didn't vote for him at all. But but it wasn't crazy in 2017 to still think about how this could be controlled and contained and the Republican Well, we Party. still thought that would be a breaking point. Yeah, If he did A, then this would be the reaction. Right, and if it, he didn't grow in office. And, and so it wasn't crazy to hope for that and, and to work for that, honestly. It was a decent investment. It just turned out to be false, not to happen. And but, Yeah, but by the impeachment around 2020, it was it was – obvious and yeah well and he and you know thinking back through that period i agree with you but also it was still shocking to see what happened after january 6th you know there was that moment on january 7th where everybody seemed to have a certain clarity they all got it and that lasted as you said about 48 hours and now it's it's it is it's worse than ever so the question is you know and i i keep coming back to the same number that you use with with greg Sargent that that and at this point, really, what we could be hoping for is you get three percent, five percent of you know Trump world you know, Republican voters, you know, is would be decisive as you point out, peeling away five percent of Republican voters to stay home or better vote against uh, you know Trumpy election deniers. That seems to be doable, and that's consistent with the polling. That may happen. We're not looking for a dramatic sea change, but. I guess I'm still struck by the incredible investment in Donald Trump. You would think that conservatives would be able to say, okay, here are our issues. And these are issues that we think are working for us. You know, the, you know the, whether it's, you know, immigration or it's crime or it's critical race theory or inflation, all of those things that they think work for them. And yet all, so much of their psychic energy is sucked up in defending this guy who feels like a boat anchor on the party right now. I mean, and, and the Wall Street Journal editorial board is a perfect example. They, they appear to have no illusions about Donald Trump's unfitness for office. And yet they will always come back to the barricades when Donald Trump is, as opposed to saying, you know what, we're kind of done with him. He's on his own. Let's talk about things we want to talk about. They just cannot quit him. Yeah, and I don't know quite some of that psychological, some of that's uh, a tactical decision. I mean, I think privately they're they're done with him, and they would say they are, and um, would say let's just have DeSantis, and we'll advance all these policy issues, and pretend we never were complicit in the really grotesque abuses of power and so forth of Trump. That's another problem, of course, for some of us in terms of just wiping the slate clean. But for them, that's not a they, they could they could as it were try to wipe the slate clean, but. But then they sort of tell us about, but God, a lot of the people out there, 30, 40, 50, 60% of the Republican base 
want Trump. So we can't attack Trump. We can't tell the truth about what Trump was like. We just want to move on. But ooh, now Trump's under attack and you sort of have to take sides. Are you pro-FBI yeah. or Joe Trump? Well, it can't be pro-FBI because that would antagonize all the Trumpists. So we're going to just be neutral. Well, actually, we're going to be a little bit anti-FBI <laughs> because, you know, I think that's somehow, but no, they're not thinking that way. A lot of that is, is just psychology. But the degree to which, again, being a rationalizer of Trump and a private critic of Trump turns out being a private critic, but only private critic of Trump and a public neutral, you might say on Trump, or let's move on slides so quickly into being a, well, actually I also want to make clear what he did wasn't as bad as what the FBI did. And then moves on the next step to, I also want to make clear that, you know, he's not as, would still prefer to move on, but we do need to defend him in this, in this juncture against these horrible left-wing critics. And incidentally, the left is more of a threat than the right. And, you know, the, the, the slippery slope there is, turns out to be far more slippery than I expected. There, There's no ability to stop at a certain, to use the metaphor, you know, landing on the staircase and say, okay, here's where I'm stopping. I'm not going further. And uh, that's been an interesting psychological, it I guess you call it, and cultural and political phenomenon, but a very bad one, obviously, of the last uh, several years. So let's talk about the midterms. And I was talking with Mike Murphy about this earlier this week. And of course, he has all of the appropriate caveats. There have been polling fails before. It is still early. Um, we have a lot of history and a lot of fundamentals. Uh, I was watching here in Wisconsin, uh, the wall-to-wall political ads, all virtually all of which are negative, by the way, not, not a surprise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just being reminded how a, a lot of politics today is just, you know, exercising political gravity, bringing people back to the tribe that they were in before, that you may have thought about straying, but the other side is just so completely horrible. So you have been commenting for some time about the decoupling in the polls between Biden's unpopularity and uh, the numbers for congressional Democrats. So give me your sense of where you think things are right now in early September. So, I mean, I think for the last 20 years, really, being on the side of history is destiny, midterm, you know, which first midterms are terrible for incumbent uh, parties that control both the presidency and Congress. And on the side of, even more importantly, of demography is destiny. Red America, blue America, red districts, blue districts, red states, blue states, it always defaults to that at the end. You kid yourself that you have a good candidate and then that candidate gets crushed because people end up reverting to uh, their party loyalty. That's what polarization means. I and mean, it literally is what polarization is, you know, and politically. And so if you were on the side of betting on polarization, demography, and history, you were basically would have been right a lot of the time, right. so many times in the last 20 years. And actually people like me who thought, well, maybe this could be counter trend were wrong. I've been bullish on Democrats here for the last several months, really several months. Uh, not quite as much as Simon Rosenberg, but almost as much. He's probably the most ardent exponent of the fact that this needn't have been a red wave election. But I, I, the one thing I did see early was just, again, an empirical observation where I think maybe strengthened a little bit by wishfulness, but not too much, I hope, that the generic congressional ballot at its worst was kind of plus three Republican. Mm -hmm. And Biden was drifting down from, at that point, was like, minus 10 approval and was going towards minus 15, 17, 18. And the generic didn't really budge for a while before it started to rally, before the Democrats started to rally. It just sort of sat there at minus 2.5 as Biden went down. And I thought, well, this is, I'm not, you know, leave aside what I think should happen and why people should be more upset about this or that. Just as in an analytical matter, a fair number of voters, this is the same polls, right? A fair number of voters are saying, I don't approve of Biden. Uh, I somewhat disapprove of Biden, especially the ardent Biden disapprovers were voting Republican. But I'm still inclined to vote Democratic or at least consider voting Democratic in the fall. And that's turned out to stick. Now, Biden's now rallied some, so the gap is less, but it's still noticeable. And the rally on the generic was pre-Biden approval rally, actually. And so I do think, uh, Ron Brownstein's made this point, Something like a fifth of those who somewhat disapprove of Biden now say they're voting Democratic in the fall. And that is historically way higher number. than it's been yeah. in other midterms where it's been more like 8% or 10%. And that makes all the difference if it goes from 10 to 20% of the electorate. So so will that stick? Who knows? We're two months out. Mike Murphy, I know, has thought, you know, he's seen these summer rallies before. They often fade in the fall and sort of history and gravity and demography reassert themselves. And as I say, that has been the right bet to make in most of our recent, most of the elections of the last two or really three decades, I must say, but I, maybe not this time. And one thing that may be very much influencing 
maybe not making it the right bet to make, is that in none of those elections for the last 20 or 30 years was a 49-year-old Supreme Court decision establishing a right that was pretty important to an awful lot of Americans and a decision that had become you know, pretty well, very well established and also pretty popular. In none of these other election years was that decision overturned with three recently appointed judges appointed by a very controversial president and in one case at least you know jammed through the senate uh, you know the eight days before the election uh, they all voted to overturn it so i think the degree to which it was a shock that roe was overturned maybe knowledgeable people expected it but the country certainly did and the consequences of that and that the people who had voted the pro-life movement that had wished to overturn it in the republican party didn't really have sensible ideas about how to then what kind of legislation to pass, you know, as a, to replace right. Roe v. Wade and, and what exceptions to make and, and then the parade of horribles that turned out to be not so theoretical, but, but real in, in many states. Um, all of that together, I think, was like, geez, this is this is pretty extreme. And I, I do think people people who just kind of watched it all, eh, of course, yeah, Roe probably could get over Roe. I guess Roe's been overruled, but abortion never really fundamentally an issue that moves that many voters, not like the economy. I mean, I think they underestimated the degree to, of uh, the shock of the decision, the effect on people's lives, their expectations, the sense of extremism it conveyed. Now, having said all that, I don't want to minimize the fact that gas prices also went down all summer, and that made a big difference, probably. That made more of a difference for Biden, but for the generic ballot, maybe a little difference. I just did a conversation, actually, yesterday with Bill Galston, who sees on Mona's podcast all the time, and you know mm-hmm. well, uh, on the politics of abortion. And, and he and I both were well, people should listen to a bit. Uh, Bill, who's very moderate politically and very analytical about this, this could be one of these rare moments where all the history and all the demography, they don't get swamped, but they get decisively affected by other things. And the two big other things are Trump and Roe. We've had neither of those situations before. 2014, 2010, all that stuff. You didn't have an ex-president who had tried to stage a coup as the leader of the opposition party and throwing himself into everything and being extremely public, A, and B, you didn't have a 50-year-old court decision that's important to a lot of people overturned. So those are two awfully big extraneous variables, right? Right. I mean, you think about when history has has not followed. Like, for example, uh, in you know, the 2002 election after, after 9-11, right. uh, Republicans actually picked up seats. I mean, there were some big issues there. But going back, going back to Roe, you know, at, at the time it happened, it was it was such a shock. It took a while, I think, for people to fully understand how the world had changed. And of course, all these Republican legislators uh, went out of their way to make it as dramatically you know, apparent as they as they could have. And, you know, Will Salatin, you know, our colleague who has written a book about abortion, mm-hmm. made a really good point last night on the live stream. He said, you know, uh, we wonder about which stories move the needle. And, you know, a story about a scandal is something that happened. It is discreet. It doesn't necessarily affect your life. It's a story. And then four days later, you might not know about it, but it doesn't actually affect anything necessarily going forward. In contrast, the Dobbs decision, the overturning of Roe versus Way, affects the lives of millions of people who continue to have sex, who continue to uh, think about whether they are going to have children, when they're going to have children. And so it's an ongoing issue involving fundamental issues in every part of the country. And Republicans, instead of embracing the consensus position, say, for example, you know, keep it at the state level, 15-week bans, things like that, immediately, within five minutes, you know, began enacting these complete and total bans, some of which do not have exceptions for rape or incest, began talking about a national ban. I do think that that is going to have a tremendous effect. I've talked to a number of Republican women, very conservative Republican women, who have been pro-choice, but figured that it didn't really matter in terms of their votes, who now have decided this does matter to them. So there's going to be erosion in a lot of different areas. So that's number one. And as you point out, we've never had an election in which the defeated former incumbent uh, is insisting that he be on the ballot. And that this is one of the, the key things about this fall is that Donald Trump is insisting that the midterms be about him. And I'm guessing the Democrats are completely okay with that because you have an issue that's working in their favor. And then you have a very clarifying moment about, you know, the return of Donald Trump and what that means. And we've never had a midterm that's taken place under those kinds of circumstances. Now, again, I, I, I caution against wish casting. 
but those are two big fundamentals. Yeah, and they and they just one footnote. I think that's well said. I was, uh, I agree with it, and uh, we're in agreement. So God yeah. knows we'll probably the radical agreement. Will, the opposite will probably happen here, but uh, but they intersect too, right? These two parallel tracks. Let's just call it Trump and Roe intersect in the Trumpiness of the Republican Party leads to nominees like uh, Mastriano and 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 others who um, who are radical and extremist on. Abortion, you know, because they pay no price and because catering to the base is meant for the last several years, apparently, just being more and more extreme. And they've got plenty of congressional candidates who thought it was costless to say, I'm for a federal ban as well. And some of them are running in uh, members of Congress in California and stuff in competitive races. So Trump and Roe come together in the extremism of the Republican Party as it presents itself to voters now in real time in 2022. And that, that may well matter. No, I, I think it may matter. And, and there also is going to be a, maybe a different story in the House than, than in the Senate. I think that the conventional wisdom is now shifting toward uh, the possibility that Democrats might actually do better in the Senate. If the Republicans win the House and it is a narrow majority, and again, trying to think ahead uh, as opposed to news cycles, uh, ahead, you know, months now, uh, you, you want to talk about a just out of control shit show if you have a Republican led uh, House where Kevin McCarthy does not have a workable majority. I mean, this will be one of those moments where however flawed Joe Biden is, um, you know that the foil of this dysfunctional extreme house will be beneficial. You know, people remember, I, I'm sure you remember as well, we all thought that uh, that uh, the Bill Clinton was dead man walking after the 1994 Republican landslide. And yet he very deftly was able to use the Republican, you know, Republican missteps in order to resurrect his his reelection campaign. And I could certainly see uh, the, the 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 political narrative in this country changing rather dramatically when you have a house that is dominated by the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. It's a tenuous majority that, that you'll have trouble holding together on some votes because not all of them want to go along with the most radical stuff, and and there'll be some, so there'll be dissension from the moderates such as such as Remain, but there are a few of them, and if it's a close enough majority, a few matter, and then of course from the Marjorie Taylor Greens that that McCarthy's not going far enough, and but he, McCarthy won't be able to constrain Jim Jordan as chairman of judiciary right. from holding you know hearings that go after the Justice Department and FBI for a totally clear-cut, black-and-white justified, uh, in my opinion, series of, you know, reactions to the fact that Trump took extremely sensitive classified documents to Mar-a-Lago. So I think the degree of kind of chaos, ineffectual extremism among the House Republicans could be, yeah, could be very important in 2023. Well, and they'll impeach Biden because they have to. Or try to, and then and then ten Republicans will say maybe will ten say I don't know most of the of course most of the pro impeachment Trump Republicans will come, but there might still be ten who say oh that's a little bit much you know the Tom Coles of the world and then they don't have two hundred and eighteen votes and then the then Marjorie Taylor Greene goes crazy and tries to purge Tom Cole from being the chairman of I don't know whatever he would be I think rules or appropriations or something and I mean I just you can imagine many scenarios and A B Stoddard our friend who that you've done an excellent mm-hmm. podcast with and who wrote certain terrific pieces for the Bulwark recently has made this point. We are Everyone wants to go from 2022 to 2024, and I'm guilty of this too, and let's discuss whether Biden should, should be the nominee or should he hand it off after a successful one term to the next generation. And what about the Trump versus DeSantis? Everyone wants to skip over what 2023 is going to look like. Oh, and it be could wild. be pretty crazy. I agree with that. I think, I think 2023 is going to be one of the most extraordinary political years. And I think it's going to change um, a lot of our understanding of politics. Okay, so speaking of just the way, the way things are playing out in terms of the midterms, we we're talking about extremism, talking about uh, Roe. Uh, the uh, you know Axios has a very interesting piece about Abigail Spanberger. I am a fan. She's a Democrat from Virginia. She is a very centrist a Democrat, very much um, on the line. She's one of the endangered centrist Democrats in the general election. But the Cook Report. Cook Political Report upgraded her reelection chances, um, um, citing the fact that her Republican opponent keeps saying kind of crazy things. You know, first of all, her, her opponent's name is Vega. And, you know, was asked about well, what about you know, exemptions for rape and abortion and said, well, I just don't think that anybody, you know, will ever get pregnant, you know, from 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 rape. So that's number one. She's defended the January 6th uh, insurrection, etc. So once again, you have many of these Republican candidates in winnable districts that have been 
I won't say forced, but have been led to embrace these really extreme positions that might have played well in the primary, but which are toxic in a general election. Yeah, and I think this is a neighboring district to me here in Virginia, so, and I know a little bit about that race from talking to people working on it uh, with Spanberger. Um, I mean, Vega was considered the better of the Republican candidates in the primary. They were happy, I believe, the you know, mm-hmm. Kevin McCarthy types that she won. They may have helped her one. I can't remember the primary. The woman with, I think, a law enforcement background, if I'm not mistaken, maybe her husband was in the military. But And and so they thought, you know, this was a good way to negate some of Spanberger's advantages. But yes, it turns out even, even the more respectable of the Republicans has said pretty wacky things and isn't quite ready for, for this level of scrutiny. But this is also a case where the you know there was private polling that showed there was very tied that even basically three months ago when the generic was plus two and a half Republican. Now it's moved three points isn't much, but suddenly if it if the three points is true in this district, add a point or two more maybe for the candidate weakness for the money that the Democrats have been able to raise as it's become apparent that this isn't maybe going to be a blowout and people should step up. About four or five months ago, Democratic consultants I knew were very worried about Democratic donors just sort of saying, oh, hopeless, let's just save our, you know, uh, uh, keep our powder dry for 2024 kind of attitude. Now the people are stepping up. Suddenly she'll have a spending advantage. It's an expensive district. You have to buy DC TV because it's, I think, 80% DC media market mm-hmm. in Prince William. I mean, suddenly it's like, oh, well, she could really be, she could win, not only win, but she could win maybe somewhat handily. And suddenly then you can you go try to pick off a couple of Republican seats instead of just having to spend a fortune defending, you know, every Democrat who's vulnerable. They still have to do that, obviously. And I don't want to overstate how much of a change there's been. But, you know, at the margin with, even though there aren't as many competitive seats as there used to be, there's still a fair number at the margin. And it makes a big difference if if the whole uh, playing field is is tilted three or four points to one side or the other. We haven't even discussed, uh, barely discussed Judge Cannon, but you know what? You can do that with your, the legal beagles can do that. I guess we're going to have a hearing shortly and she'll make some decisions. Then next week we'll see if they, she grants the Justice Department a brief and so forth. But, Which is uh, unlikely. But what, what really struck me about that, and again, I'm, I'm speaking as a, as a non-lawyer here, um, was what, um, it was very politely worded, but what a smackdown that Department of Justice response to her uh, ruling was, pointing out all of her errors of law, uh, pointing out the unintended consequences of her ruling, giving her a chance. Would you like to back out of this risible ruling <laughs> that you handed down? Or would you prefer that we get the 11th Circuit uh, to uh, to over- overturn you here? Um, but, you know, this is just... It, it's, you know, number one, it's a reminder, um, you know, how fragile the rule of law is if you have judges like this. Uh, n- number two, I, I'm I'm really interested in the way the conventional wisdom seems to flip back and forth about um, how this Mar-a-Lago raid is playing. And, you know, all the, all the smart kids were saying that it was backfiring, it was helping Trump, it was bringing people home. Uh, Carl Rove said earlier this week, no. These are bad headlines, you know, that every news cycle that goes by in which Republicans are forced to talk about Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago is a news cycle. They're not able to talk about the issues that they want to be able to talk about. And then there were always also the the smart kids who were saying, well, this is good for Trump because um, it's pushing January 6th out of the headlines. But I see this morning the January 6th committee is scheduling new hearings. I think that maybe we're so suffering from PTSD of all the things that haven't made a difference that we're kind of numb to the cumulative effect of all of this. And the fact that these charges and a possible indictment against Trump are not not political assets for Donald Trump. I I very much agree with with all of that. I just would add one point to your first point, which was sort of the um, how extraordinary Judge Cannon's ruling was and, and therefore the rule of law is not quite as strong as we would maybe like it to be because it depends on judges and it depends on uh, people sort of certain norms that being some of which, well, it depends on obviously on having judges who will be serious about, about enforcing the law. You know, I'm on a couple of email chains with very intelligent lawyers, very helpful to me to be on these, on these chains to understand what's going on in these cases, but the degree to which they, and these are is very savvy people. Some of them have been involved in some of the efforts over the last, many, all of them have been involved in the last four, five, six years to maintain the rule of law. And they've dealt with uh, the courts and with the, the Trump administration then and now the Trump, you know, the efforts post-administration to get Trump exempt from the rule of law. Um, there's still, honestly, I, the 
I've barely intervened in this because these are lawyers are, you know, discussing things at a very high level of kind of legal mm -hmm. detail. But my intervention has always been, you know, it's very interesting, but don't assume that because you have shown definitively that in this case, for example, that it would be kind of crazy for Judge Cannon to say, let's have a, uh, uh, a special master, um, that it won't happen, right? I mean, there's still a sort of assumption in the world that the institutions hold, the judges yeah, behave like judges, and everyone is, you know, if, if, if GOJ submits a really good brief, well, that's it, kind of, you know? Because, <laughs> right? And I, I don't, I think, let's hope that's true in 80%, 90% of cases. But there has been erosion, and I do think it's very revealing. I mean, Jack Cannon went through there at, at, at age 38 in the lame duck session in 2020, and I knew nothing about her, of course, and no one who voted to confirm her in the Senate knew anything about her, I suppose. But she was a Federal Society-approved judge, so young, and so Rubio nominator, so put her on. It turns out, I mean, really the degree of lack of qualification for this judge, and I'm not like a person, maybe she would have been qualified right. in 10 years, but literally no experience, no no publications, no nothing in terms of she wasn't a distinguished lawyer, she wasn't a distinguished law clerk, she wasn't a distinguished, I don't know, anything, you know, anything, frankly, um, a former prosecutor, former defense attorney, former corporate, whatever, you know, you should be to become a federal judge. Um, and so the degree to which now, I don't, hopefully, this is a small minority of the judges currently on the federal bench, and, and again, she's only one district judge. But again, I, I brings home so much of theme that, of, of Liz Cheney and a theme that you've hammered on, and really is sort of relevant to our very opening discussion about the Queen. I mean, you know, the the, the human beings matter here, and sure and and there's been damage. They can do damage even if the kind of institutional fabric and structure looks the same as it did a few years ago. No, I agree. Let's uh, let, let's end on that dark note, or at least that, yeah, yeah. that caution. I was worried that you were being that. too cheerful, so I thought, you know, come on, let's. No, in the spirit I, of know, Jonathan, I, in the spirit of Jonathan V. Last, we need to end on a. On well, a I, I, I do, I do think that you know, you just underline the experience of the last uh, several decades. It is fragility. It is the fact that we are, you know, that we are not immune to history, and that a lot of things that we thought were solid, in fact, turned out to be very, very flimsy. And uh, and and I, and I think that one of the things that we have failed to do is is have enough imagination about what what could possibly go wrong. And the answer is a hell of a lot. So, Bill, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I'll be back on Monday, and Will Sellerton and I will break down the events of the last few days. <laughs>